So we're going through the Psalms, and um, as the Lord has been just working in our church, um, he's been uh, cranking up the thermostat on the climate in our church for world missions, um, just doing a revival in our church, really, for uh, that would that would go to the nations, and just part of that is that we pray for a different nation every week, and getting back into that since we've been back from Nepal. We had about a month praying for Nepal, and now we're just moving on. We're going to pray for um, Qatar. Um, uh, doesn't have a broken string. It's a different kind of Qatar. But uh, Q-A-T-A-R, I think. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be praying for them. Uh, and in the Psalms, it's just been incredible to see that you know, as, as much as we see the blessings of the Lord poured out upon the psalmist or upon the nation of Israel, um, it, you know, that we see intentions that it's never to just end with David or it's never to end with the psalmist writer, writers, um, but it's, it's to go forth to the nations, the bounty that the Lord would bring in here or, or whatever it might be, the justice that the Lord brings here. Uh, the judgments against enemies that the Lord would bring here, that's to go and flow out, out of Prineville, into the region, and into the world. And it's just amazing to go through a psalm and to see that. Um, it's been a really exciting study today. Uh, I wanted to tackle two chapters today to make some headway through psalms, but this is like twice as long of a chapter that we're normally in. So it's not going to happen tonight. We're just going to enjoy um, uh, Psalm chapter 9 tonight. <clears throat> uh, it starts out titled, Prayer and Thanksgiving for the Lord's Righteous Judgments. This is a title given to it with a subtitle, To the Chief Musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a Psalm of David. Uh, what's neat is that God himself is generally referred to as the chief musician. Isn't that cool that he's just like the highest and greatest of everything? You can only imagine one day, we'll, we'll know it one day how amazing of a musician he is. Um, <laughs> it'll rock. Uh, and uh, it might be classical. It might have a little bit of everything in it, but it's going to be amazing. God himself is uh, this chief musician. Um, Guzik writes that in this psalm, David celebrates the help and the goodness of God with a big vision for the nations. Uh, and I just love that. I'm, I'm just finding just as I'm reading preachers and commentaries, just how we just see this result of just the flow of God's grace and the flow of God's goodness going to the nations. And we see even in this with a title of prayer and thanksgiving for Lord's righteous judgments that it goes out with a big vision to the nations. Um, this tune, maybe you have a Bible that, that calls it instead of the death of the sun, it's the Muth Laban or something like that, almost seems German. Um, many believe that that's from a Chaldean song that was a, a song of mourning um, uh, over the death of Goliath. And that, um, that David took this song from like the Philistines and retuned it uh, to be a worship song to the Lord. And so interesting as you read this, you might just picture there's a song, there's some tune, we don't know what it was, you can make it up if you want, um, that, that's like praising the Lord in how the Lord conquered this wicked man, Goliath, and scattered the Philistine army. Um, so sometimes we do that. There's bands in the Christian world that they take secular songs and then they put Christian words to them. 
Um, that's basically what David's doing here. It's pretty cool. But it's a song about the victory the Lord brought through him uh, with the sling and the stone. So that's a little bit of the introduction to this psalm. Uh, just a first heading for us. It's broken down into three parts as I studied it today. Um, the first part is David is praising God for how he deals with an enemy. And so he's going to sing praises to the, to the God who does great things. Verse 1, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I'll, I'll thank you, Lord, with my inner self, with my depth of being, with my inner inclinations. Or the heart, speaking of the heart of man, it speaks of the depth of who man is. Heart and soul often go together. Um, but he's going to praise the Lord and thank the Lord from his inner man. As Damien Kyle from Calvary Chapel Modesto puts it, this is the key to the whole thing. This is the key to the whole chapter. It's, a, it's the depth of heart that causes our worship to mean anything to the Lord. It's the key to the whole thing. And I want to ask you, even tonight as we came and we sang some songs, uh, but, you know, we've learned a lot, and I think Chad helped trumpet this in our body in, in a really good way, that worship isn't just um, singing with a guitar or a piano or with a choir or anything like that. And it's not just music. Worship is everything that we do is to be worship for the Lord. The fact that we even exist as men and women, we've been created in the image of God. It's called the doctrine of the Imago Dei. And just the understanding that God created us in his image, it was for the purpose of us reflecting him to the whole world. And when sin came into the world, uh, it was like we were a mirror reflecting the glory of God. And sin came in and cracked that mirror and it brought distortion. We're going to see today that even wicked men have some level of reflecting the glory of God. But through the gospel, the Lord is mending that mirror and putting that mirror back together so that one day we will just fully be able to worship the Lord in beauty and in perfection again. My sister's an artist, and one of the things that she does, um, artsiness, is uh, she breaks mirrors. <laughs> it's a great way to do art. Um, <laughs> she breaks mirrors, you know, and then puts the mirrors back together to form a picture. So if you've been to my house in my kitchen, you'll see she's uh, broken mirrors and then put the pieces back to make a beautiful like plant um, growing or a tree that's growing. And so um, it's, it's really beautiful. Um, but that's what the Lord is doing. He's mending our mirrors. He's making them tighter, tighter together so that they actually, <laughs> you get the picture. Don't need to draw it for you. <laughs> um, and so we've been created to worship in everything we do, the way we do our jobs, uh, the way we spend our free time, when we give our money, when we give our resources, what, um, you know, uh, what we do with our talents and our gifts. Um, uh, and, and then, yeah, the, the singing and the worship is a part of that. Uh, but the Lord desires it to be the whole of our heart that's doing it. Uh, whatever you do, the scriptures tell us, do it with your whole heart. It's the key to the whole thing. Spurgeon says, half a heart is no heart. Half a heart is no heart. Um, half a heart doesn't bring life. It brings death. Uh, Matthew 15, 8 says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He was speaking of the Pharisees who were the most religious people that really probably ever existed, like ever. That was their job was to just be religious. And he pinpointed the issue in their life was that they were drawing near with lips. They were doing all kinds of religious activity, 
but their hearts were far, far away. And so tonight, in verse 1 of our psalm, the, the question needs to be asked, what, what describes how you praise the Lord and how you thank the Lord? What percentage or portion of your heart and your life are given over to worshiping him? Uh, whatever you, your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart to the glory of God. Uh, and so uh, I encourage you with uh, the way you might coach, the way you uh, might shovel dirt, the way you build a deck, the way that you, uh, you know, prepare a meal, whatever it might be. Do it with all your heart so you can give praise to the Lord. How many of us have children, you know, and, and you're teaching them as you say, man, you, you look so handsome today, Russell, you know, and he might bust out a, I know, right? You know, and, <laughs> and you're just like, man, um, let's curb that to be not so much an I know, right, but wow, um, praise the Lord, you know, <laughs> like, he created me, so if there's anything good, it's got to be from him, you know, or good job on your acing your test. Yeah, I know, I'm awesome. Oh, man, praise the Lord. He gave me the wisdom and the strength. Just everything that we do, look for ways to praise the Lord. Um, Tiffany Reed was making fun of me the other day because she was encouraging me about something in the church, and like every other word was praise the Lord. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be redundant. I am just want to be so careful to not take any credit or glory for anything, because that's the quickest way to end a work of the Holy Spirit, a work of the Lord, is receiving glory on yourself. Um, so there's, there's that aspect, but there's also the, as we worship the Lord, um, how near are our hearts to the Lord? Are they far from him? Are they near? Is it just lip service that we're doing? Um, you know, we, we see a song on the screen that's like, a grateful song I sing, uh, you know, <laughs> like, a grateful song I sing, a prayerful prayer I pray, you know, it's like, Come on, we're family here. We can be grateful in the way that we sing, okay? If I can do it, you can do it. Okay. Um, Damien, Kyle, again, uh, it was good to revisit him today. Uh, he's speaking about in this psalm how, you know, there's a battle going on between righteousness and wickedness. And there, there always has been since, since the fall in the garden. It's a battle that we are in every day. Um, but no matter... What we're at, where we're at in that battle, whether we're feeling it really hot one day or we seem to be behind the lines or uh, way, way behind the lines to where we're, we're safe, um, there, there can always be a heart that worships God fully. He says no matter how bad things get in the world, we can still worship God with our whole heart. Our whole heart. Um, he says, I will tell of all your marvelous works. Uh, this is really neat to do a word study on because telling of the marvelous works, the word tell means to take a census or write down a written record or keep a record. I will keep a census of your marvelous, wonderful, astounding works. How many of you have journals here? Is anybody a journaler? Man, that is just such a wonderful way to help keep on track, you know, uh, in your prayer life. You have one? Awesome. Keep that journal up, buddy. I come and go with having journals, depending on how disciplined I am. But, uh, but it's so great to go back to those journals and read. And I'm telling you, God is faithful. I don't think there's ever been a time I go back to my journals and go, boy, he really let me down there. You know, he never came through there. He's so faithful. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, a way to praise him with all of our heart is, as David's saying here, simply list the things and tell of his Wonderful works. It's a great way to praise him. Uh, this wonderful or marvelous works 
Uh, one man wrote, wonderful deeds or things is a single Hebrew word particularly frequent in the Psalms used especially of the great redemptive miracles. Uh, and so <clears throat> as we're writing down the wonderful deeds, it's okay to go back to the things of old. Like in Psalm 106, 7, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. And then a few verses later in Psalm 106, 22, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. I mean, these were, this was written, you know, thousand something years after the Red Sea crossing, but the psalmist is writing them down to remember the faithfulness of God. And, and as um, you read through the scriptures, how often do they go back to that Red Sea crossing? That was a pretty big deal. It was a pretty big deal that he heaped the waters up and had you know, a million people march through on dry ground and then swallowed up a whole, one of the most mighty armies of the day. That's big. And it never left you know, the writers. They always came back to it. Right now we're in Joshua. And we just read, was it yesterday, um, of the crossing of the Jordan and how just like a Red Sea, but on a smaller scale, the Jordan was heaped up in a huge, in huge, um, mile, uh, not mileage, but uh, distance on each side of the Jordan River. Uh, it actually gives you landmarks how far the Jordan River was backed up to so that all these people could march across. And then when the priests came out of the Jordan River with their uh, little flip-flops on, you know, the water piled back down. And then they all piled stones up to remember what God did. And when the people saw the 12 stones that are piled up by the Jordan, the little kid would ask, why are these stones here? Oh, because when we were coming into the land of the promise, the, the priests stepped in with the Ark of the Covenant, and the minute their feet stepped into the water, whoosh, the waters parted, and the whole nation came through. It was incredible. Write that down in the census so that you can come back to it in times of your desperation, in times of your trials. These are great redemptive miracles, but this same Hebrew word is also used for what seem like less obvious, you know, daily experiences of the Lord, where maybe, you know, a whole ocean doesn't separate and, you know, allow you to cross through, but it might be something as simple as Psalm 71, 17. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth. And to this day, I declare your wondrous works. I mean, how wonderful. Those of you that have grown up in a, in a Christian home and going to youth group and things, to be able to, okay, you know, I can write down the things that were miraculous that you did. I'm also going to write down the things like, Lord, you gave me a mom and a dad that love you and, you know, and, and discipled me. And, you know, since a, since a child, you know, I would sing Jesus loves me, this I know. And, you know, these songs that just spoke of your love. And like Timothy, who Paul even writes and praises the Lord for Timothy's mother and grandmother and how they discipled him. Those are things to keep a list of. Those are ways to praise the Lord from the bottom of our heart. Um, there's also hidden glories of Scripture where the same Hebrew word is used, marvelous works. In Psalm 119, 18, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. And so in your journal and in your census of written, writing down the faithfulness of God, write down the scripture that you're reading that day that ministers to you. 
Oh, you've shown me wondrous things from your word, Lord. I, I treasure it. Those are ways to praise the Lord from the depths of our hearts. Um, <clears throat> uh, Alexander McLaren writes, David could see that today is as full of God to this man as the sacred yesterdays of national history and his deliverances as wonderful as those of old. Today's fantastic things that we could go around this room. Right now, okay, let's do it. Let's go around the room. Who's got something to praise the Lord for? Anything. Could be, it could be like, a, I was raised in a Christian home. Pam, what do you got? So going on, verse 2 in our psalm, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Uh, I will be merry in you, Lord. It's in God that there's joy given to David. This is the second way to praise God. It's just simply finding and expressing gladness and joy in God. It's almost like, you know, a, a husband that leaves a little note for his wife or a wife that leaves a little note for her husband, you know, and just, I'm just blessed by you today, you know. I'm just thinking of you. You are just your kindness and this, you know, just little things in the Lord that uh, ways that we can be glad and rejoice and be merry in the Lord. Uh, he says, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So a third way to praise God with our whole heart is by singing praise to his name. There's no prerequisite in scripture that says that you've got to have a professional singing voice to praise God. It's just not in there, you know. Uh, it's all throughout the scripture, though, that we're to sing. We're to even sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're to make melody to the Lord. Uh, and so um, singing, praising the Lord uh, through song, uh, to, to the most high God. This is that word we're getting familiar with, Elion. Uh, it's just this title for God. Something that is higher is what it means. Psalm 511. So singing and shouting out for joy. You know, a place like Joey where he's got enemies. He feels like he's got people that are attacking him. Spend time, Joey. Spend time shouting for joy that there's someone who defends you. It's the Lord. He's getting glory then and watch how he comes to your aid um, in those times. Um, kind of going on here, verses 3 through 5, this uh, next part of our first section, David praises God for defending him against his enemies. It says, when my enemies turn back or return to me, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. In verses 1 and 2, David finds general ways for praising God with his whole heart. But in verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5, there's specific reasons to praise him. God's defeating David's enemies. And so when we have enemies who, it seems like they've kind of left us alone for a while, but it says they return, they turn back, and they're coming back. We know who that is, anyone that's ever been bullied. I had my days in middle school. You don't have an Adam's apple like this and teeth like this and get, get away scot-free in middle school. And I had the bullies, you know. Uh, and they go away and you're like, oh, whew. And then they see you and they come back and you're like, oh, oh no. Terrifying. It's terrifying. But when the enemies turn back and come back, they will fall and perish at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, at the glory of the Lord. The more we're praising, the more we're worshiping, we've got the Shekinah around us. We've got the glory of the Lord, and our enemies will fall at the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, for you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne 
judging in righteousness. I kind of paraphrase this by looking um, and doing just word studies. You have made the decision and judgment in my legal battle and have judged righteously. God is a God who is passionate regarding right and wrong among men. We've read that in the Psalms in the past, but we've also been humbled in knowing that to pray that God would keep us on the right side. Everyone thinks they're on the right side. Hitler thought he was on the right side. And he even used Christian jargon to try to back it up. But may, may we be conformed to the word of God and have our mind transformed by his word and allow him to convict us and even use brothers and sisters to correct us so that we can be on the right side. That We can read Psalms like this and have confidence that God is on our side. It's consistent with the whole of scripture as our lives line up with scripture. Verse 5 you have rebuked the nations or the Gentiles. You have destroyed the wicked or the guilty. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. You've wiped out and annihilated even the memory of uh, these Gentile guilty nations. Proverbs 10.7, we'll see it next week. Uh, Danielle, will you read that? Yeah. And so uh, even the... You know, we've got the communist Russia. We've got uh, Nazi Germany. You know, we've got uh, these movements like this, these genocidal armies, and how, you know, their names have, if they're remembered, they're remembered with, um, with disdain, you know. Um, it, or they're completely wiped out, as so many have been in the past. Uh, let me just read verse 5 real quick. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their names forever and ever, everlastingly. <laughs> He's blotted their names out. Notice that those are all in the past tense. They're called prophetic perfects. I like that. Prophetic perfects. It's a feature of the Old Testament that describes coming events as if they've already happened. Their fulfillment is so certain it's as if it's already happened. It's a clear vision already. And this is the Lord's plan with the wicked ones, with the guilty ones. They're done. Their memory is blotted out. And eventually, that forever and ever everlasting part, the wicked will be forgotten. Verse 6 uh, begins this next section in our first section here. Uh, David celebrating the Lord's victory. O enemy, Destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. David turns from speaking to the Lord to speaking directly to his enemy, declaring how futile their destructive works are. The enemy has been destroying even cities, and their times of destruction are finished forever. Psalm 34, 16. Um, Barb, will you read that? So the enemy has been in the business of destroying things and the time of destruction is finished forever. It's a prophetic perfect, okay? Like they've been in the business of destroying and that time is done and their memory is done as well. He cuts off the remembrance of them from the earth as Barb read. Verse seven, but the Lord shall endure forever. He's prepared his throne for judgment uh, whenever you study the scripture, you want to look for repeated words because that shows us the theme that's going on there. So we're going to see a lot of 
praise in the first part of the chapter. We're going to see a lot of things about judging righteously and the Lord judging in righteousness. We're going to see a lot of forever words. And we just read that the enemy, uh, his memory will be gone forever and ever and forever again in verse 6. And then, but the contrast is found in verse 7. And David is wise not to use himself as the contrast against the wicked. The wicked will be vanishing forever. Oh, but me, I'll endure forever. No, he's humble enough to know it's the Lord that's going to endure forever. He shall endure forever. Psalm 102, 12. Uh, let's see over here. Uh, Aaron, will you read that? Psalm 102, 12. So the wicked's remembrance and their story, gone, kaput, you know. Uh, but the righteous ones, their story, uh, and, and, and in the Lord, it's the Lord who will sh- uh, endure forever. And then the remembrance of his faithfulness, all generations will declare it. Uh, for all time, we'll be worshiping him and his uh, incredible deeds. Uh, verse 8 of our text, he shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. So verse 7 ends with he's prepared his throne for judgment. Verse 8, he shall judge the world in righteousness and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. What's amazing about this judgment and this administering is that Jesus ultimately fulfills this, but it shows that the language speaks in the Hebrew that he will plead our cause and he will contend against the arguments of the wicked one, who we know is the devil. He's the slanderer from the time of beginning. He did it in Job's life. In the book of Revelation, chapters 11 through 13, tells that he's going to try to do it again in the end, slandering the people of the Lord until he's booted out of heaven. We have a mediator. His name is Jesus, and he stands there and defends us. He's our defense attorney who argues for us, who defends us. He administers justice for the peoples in uprightness. And how beautiful is that? How wonderful does that sound? You know, we know that that there are all all kinds of justice issues in the world. There are all kinds of judgment issues in the world. And even our best judges are are still men and women at best in America. And they are errant. (laughs) They are fallible. And they, you know, we look to the day where one will establish his throne for judgment. He will judge in righteousness and uprightness. This speaks of a level path in his judgment and there will be order and fairness and integrity and truth. Uh, Lindsay and I, one of our favorite uh, shows that we watch is a legal show where just the time they spend in the courtroom just duking it out. It's just like, ah, I never knew it could be so exciting. But, you know, there's corrupt judges and there's corrupt lawyers. But with us, we have a God who is incorrupt. He is the judge of all judge, and he's the mediator of all mediators. He's fair. He's got integrity. He's got truth. Psalm 96, 13. Uh, Casey, will you read that one? Paul will quote this, uh, this day on Mars Hill in Acts seventeen thirty one. Kristen, will you read that one? So who is this true and better judge and the true and better mediator? It's Jesus. He's the one that's going to judge on that day. He'll establish his throne. And the psalmist talks about it in a prophetic, what was it called? (laughs) Perfect prophetic or something like that. I wish I could just say it off the top of my mind to you guys, like I know it all, but I can't. 
He is the one that's going to come, and it's so sure. It's as if it's already happened. And Paul says that the Lord has bore witness to this judgment day by raising Jesus from the dead, which is the best proved fact in history. Jesus himself said it's the sign to validate if Jesus is walking in truth or if he's a charlatan, a madman who's preaching a lie and leading a cult. Uh, And so we look to that day when Jesus comes and judges the world in righteousness. And those of us that have just been set ablaze for certain social justice issues like the slavery that's going on and sex trafficking and things like that, um, you know, our hearts are burning with the justice of the Lord and the Holy Spirit that, that we could help end that even in one life. Um, and, uh, and one day it will be ended. Uh, second part of our chapter, praising God for how he treats the oppressed. That's a nice segue into that. Praising God for how he treats the oppressed. Uh, Verses 9 and 10 show us that God is a trustworthy refuge. The Lord also will be a refuge for all the oppressed. A refuge in time of trouble. The Lord does much more than just judge the wicked, which is an incredible thing. He also comforts those who have been oppressed. And he gives hope for those who have had the wicked press them down hard. Uh, He's this secure height for those who've been wounded. He's a stronghold. He brings security to those who are miserable and those that are in times of drought, as the word trouble means. In Psalm 32, verse 7, Mark, will you read it? Those of you that have watched Corey Ten Boom's um, story, and have, you know this is the song that goes with it, Hiding Place. You are my hiding place. We might be in a Nazi concentration camp, but... We're in the presence of the glory of the Lord there. No matter how dark the time, we can worship him with our whole heart and find refuge in times of trouble. He surrounds us with songs of deliverance. Psalm 46, 1 through 3, Blaine, doesn't it seem like that would be a good time to fear? (laughs) When the earth is removed, when the mountains are carried into the sea, waters roaring, mountains shaking with the swelling of the waters, good time to fear, now it's time to panic, (laughs) you know? Um, no, God's our refuge, present help in time of trouble. So we don't fear because of that. Verse 10 of our Psalm. And those who know your name will put their trust in you for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek or care for you. Those who know your name, put their trust in you. Those who are made aware of his fame and his renown, We learn the character of God, and the character of God is displayed by his actions shown to us by the scripture. When we know the character of God, when we understand his fame, we are led to believe in him. We will put our trust in him. And we've seen that this week as we study James chapter 2, the story of Rahab. How interesting that uh, James uses Abraham as an example of faith that leads to works, and, and Rahab is a Canaanite Gentile woman prostitute. She had everything in the world going against her. Yet in Joshua chapter 2, we see that she had heard of the stories of the crossing of Israel over the Red Sea and the killing of the two Amorite kings. And it says that Jericho, who had giant walls, the hearts of the men of Jericho melted within them. And she said, I've heard of the marvelous works of God and the character of God. And you know what? I trust that God because here come Israel out of Egypt and they're right outside our walls. 
Obviously, something has happened to get them from point A to point B. And I, for one, choose to honor this God, Yahweh. And so she's hiding them under the reeds on the, on the top of her house. She says she begs them to remember her. And, and Joshua chapter 6 tells us that her and her whole family were spared, and even her possessions were spared. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 says that Rahab did not perish like those who didn't believe because she'd received the spies with peace. She believed. She trusted in the Lord. Those who know your name will put their trust in you, Lord, for you've never forsaken the ones who seek you. You've never forsaken the ones who care about you. It's never happened. Is that encouraging to anybody here? If we care for the Lord and care about the things of the Lord and seek the Lord, he has got our back. He's never forsaken those. That's encouraging. That is so encouraging. Proverbs 8, 17, I like to hop around. So Christy, can you bust it out? I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. Jeremiah 29, 13. Joey? So this is an incredible passage. And this does show one aspect of soteriology or the study of salvation, one aspect that is man or woman's responsibility. Man has the responsibility to seek after the Lord. Amen? Romans tells us that since the fallen condition, there is none who seeks after me, no, not one. So how does that happen? If you seek after me with all your heart, I'll be there for you. But I don't because of my fallen condition. Now, we come to verses like this, and I love them, okay? And I'm neither Calvinist nor Arminianist, okay? I I see the tension in Scripture, and it's the tension that holds up the Golden Gate Bridge, all right? There's tension there. There are the scriptures that say, you will seek me if you seek me with your whole heart. But let's look at the context of it all. Jeremiah 29, uh, Joey just read it, but let's not stop at verse 13. Let's look at some context, 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I know that's some of your favorite memory verse here. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So amen that you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. But the context of that Jeremiah passage is after 70 years and you've completed your exile in this time of discipline that I've had against you. It's a scripture that Daniel read that caused him to recall. What's going on in this Babylonian captivity? I, the Lord, will visit you and perform my good works towards you and cause you to return to this place. Verse 12 says, Then you will call upon me, go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and go and find me when you search with all your heart. And so we have man's responsibility uh, and woman's responsibility, and we have the Lord's action, God's sovereignty in this process, that he's behind it. It's nothing to hate. It's nothing to cringe at. Praise God that the Lord did a work where he 
moved. Okay, and I'm not saying that he's the one that uh, that believed for you. Okay, I think that man has to believe. All right, but believing isn't a work that we can boast in. We see here that it's the Lord visiting us. It's the Lord performing our His good word towards us. The Lord's the one that gets the ball rolling. Okay. Jesus himself says, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Okay? Or we have passages, uh, like I love, in uh, John chapter 1, verse 13, that says, uh, to those who have received him, he gives the right to be called sons and daughters of God. So man's responsibility, receiving. But the very next verse, you can't stop. We've got to keep in contact. The very next verse says, who are born not of the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. Okay? Who gets all the glory in this? God does. God gets the glory. Man has responsibility. C.S. Lewis says, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are two pillars that reach up into the throne room and they connect somewhere up there in heaven. And that's all I know. There's man's responsibility. They must believe, must repent, must turn. And there's God's sovereignty who moves and who acts and who draws. Okay? This is also soteriology. It's deep stuff. And we rejoice in the tension. It's the way God's created it. To know the Lord. To know the Lord who has done these deeds. It causes us to put our trust in the Lord. Verses 11 through 12. There's singing praise to the one who remembers his people. Singing praise, verse 11, to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. I like this version of singing praise because it means sing praise by playing notes on an instrument. Guys, start playing instruments, okay? It's in the Bible. You know, get a little kid keyboard or something, you know, I don't know, but start singing praise. You know, just start fiddling, just start pounding, just start strumming, and just worship the Lord in that. Do a little ditty on the table, you know, at lunchtime. Just worship in the Lord, singing praise. I'm not dogmatic that everyone has to play an instrument if you're thinking that I was going there. But notice here, we have praise and declaring. Praise and declaring. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we've been given just the grace of the Lord upon us, being chosen as a generation, being given a, a task of serving as priests. We are a holy nation. We are special people, Christians. There's a purpose, though. It's so that, you see it? That you may, first of all, proclaim and praise. So that you may witness and worship. That's why we've been saved. So we would tell the world and tell the nations and open our mouths and tell people about the salvific ways of God and so that we would also worship him in it. Praise and proclaiming. Witnessing and worshiping. Charles Spurgeon says, singing and preaching as means of glorifying God are here joined together and it is remarkable that connected with all revivals of gospel ministry, there has been a sudden outburst of the spirit of song. Luther's psalms and hymns were in all men's mouths and in the modern revival under Wesley and Whitfield, the strains of Charles Wesley, Senec, Beridge, Topolity, Hart, Newton, and many others were the outgrowth of restored piety. 
When people are born again, they begin writing songs to the Lord, worshiping him, proclaiming and praising. Goodness gracious, this is a long chapter. Are you guys worn out yet? (laughs) Me neither. Ooh, I like that kid. Verse 12, when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble or the oppressed. The Lord is one who finds blood as precious. That's why life is in the blood. That's why sacrifices had to have blood accompanied with them. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. There's life in the blood and it's precious to the Lord. And there's all scores of scriptures in Genesis where uh, Cain kills Abel. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out from me, uh, to me from the ground. Or in Genesis 9, right, of, right after they all got off the ark, the Lord's giving them some instruction, uh, Noah and his family, about murder. He says, surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. There's something precious about humanity. There's something special about that last created thing that the Lord created. And he said, it is very good. Numbers 35 says the same thing about this law of the Lord's vengeance against those that would shed blood. Much to say, but not a lot of time. I want to get through the text tonight. Uh, Verses 13 and 14, there's a plea for mercy from the God who remembers. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Now remember in verse uh, 12, it closed with, he does not forget the cry of the humble, and then he busts out a cry. <laughs> He's like, so don't forget mine. Uh, have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, my affliction, my persecution from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughters of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. Again, we have prayer, uh, excuse me, we have uh, praise and proclaiming. We have telling of your praise, worshiping and witnessing of the glory of the Lord, of his faithfulness in our life. Now notice in verse 13, the, it closes with you who lift me up from the gates of death. He then verse 14 puts us in the gates of Jerusalem. What a big contrast from the gates of hell to the gates of heaven. Spurgeon says, let our songs be excited to the highest and most rapturous pitch by the double consideration of whence we are taken. That deserves a song is what Spurgeon's saying. You've taken us from the gates of hell to the gates of heaven. Oh, you know, seeing it people when we really know what the Lord has done, we will worship. Our hearts will rejoice in salvation. The destiny of the wicked here in verse 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they made in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. Uh, We've studied that before in the Psalms and so uh, in uh, chapter 7, so we won't spend a ton of time, but uh, there's nothing that the wicked does that doesn't end up coming around and biting them in the backside, okay? Uh, The wicked hate the righteous, but everything that the wicked love about this world It's lovable because God has established a righteous remnant here. And then they want to kill the righteous, but then there's nothing good left. Okay, Essentially, uh, they, they dig their own grave by trying to persecute the righteous people. 
Verse 16, the Lord is known by the judgment he executes. He's known by that. His fame, uh, Rahab and the rest of Jericho knew about the Lord because of the judgment he executed against Egypt. And Exodus 7, 5 speaks to that as well. It goes on there in our psalm, the wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. You know, just praying that for those that are wicked out there, praying that for ISIS, praying out that for, uh, how do you say it, uh, the Nigerian rebels that have, Boko Haram, I just, yeah, for some reason that's hard for me to say, uh, that they would, you know, be working to, to destroy people and they would just get caught in their own net. For those that are uh, against what the Lord is doing here, that they would just being trapped in their own net. Uh, our third and final section of our passage here, this chapter, is David appeals to the God who judges in righteousness. Verses 17 and 18, God will deal with both the wicked and the humble. Verse 17 says, the wicked shall be turned into hell. and I mean, returning to hell. And the language actually means it's this double going into the depths of hell. It's just this, um, this depth of, of place for those who are, are wicked and guilty. And all of the nations and all of the pagans, all of the heathens that forget God. Their ultimate end is torment in hell. Um, verse 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation, hope, or hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Though the poor often feel forgotten, the Lord hasn't forgotten and eventually will not forget forever. Uh, verses 19 and 20, there's an appeal to God that he would glorify himself among the nations. It's so exciting to see as we see the, this big narrative of the scriptures that, that the Lord will glorify himself among all the nations in his plan to redeem fallen men by the death of his son. Verse 19, arise, O Lord, do not let men prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. David calls on God to put man in his place, to show him how frail and how small he is. McLaren writes, so the two parts of the psalm end with the thought that the nations may yet come to know the name of God, the one calling upon those who have experienced his deliverance to declare among the peoples his doings, the other praying for God to teach by chastisement what nations who forget him have failed to learn from mercies. G. Campbell Morgan closes this passage with, what prayer then can we pray which is of more vital importance than that the nations may know themselves to be but men? Such knowledge must drive them to dependence upon God, and such dependence is the secret of national strength and of national prosperity and permanence. And so how wonderful to go from that to praying for Qatar tonight.